Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Friday, June 5th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A further look at the emerging controversy surrounding the data analytics company behind that big hydroxychloroquine study. Another study that shows humans apparently really do want to be kind to each other. Some perfectly specific words from other languages that have no direct English translation. Today is National Donut Day, which it turns out wasn't invented by Duncan. A look at the holiday's longer and more noble history. And some recommended videos to watch this weekend. Kicking off today with some good news from here in New York City. Wednesday was the first day since March 11th that the city reported zero deaths in connection to COVID-19. That said, that is referring to confirmed deaths. The city did report three probable deaths, and the New York Times tracker sets the probable coronavirus-related deaths in New York City as high as 38 for Wednesday, which comes from their reviews of the nation and world's underreporting. So, not quite time to celebrate, but still reassuring progress for now. And an update on the emerging scandal surrounding Surgisphere, the data analytics company behind a number of COVID-19 studies, including the one that found the use of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19 was largely ineffective and even dangerous to patients. I told you on Wednesday that The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine had released expressions of concern regarding the studies. Well, yesterday, they both retracted the studies at the request of the authors, who say they were not directly involved with the data collection and, quote, can no longer vouch for the veracity of the primary data sources, end quote. The hydroxychloroquine study in particular was notable for its breadth, purportedly analyzing patient data from 671 hospitals across six continents. But that breadth is also what raised eyebrows. After a group of scientists spoke up, The Lancet requested an independent audit, but Surgisphere has not been cooperating, according to The Lancet's statement on Thursday. The Verge notes that this is indicative of the consequences we may continue to see from studies currently being conducted at breakneck speed, sometimes sacrificing accuracy along the way. Quote, It seems to some scientists like the Surgisphere data was made up, not just incorrect, so it's particularly worrying that it slipped through the cracks. It had real-world consequences. After it was published, the World Health Organization paused its study on hydroxychloroquine. It has since restarted. End quote. While Surgisphere's data is behind a number of COVID-19-related studies, the hydroxychloroquine one is getting the most notice since its use as a treatment has been so hotly contested. But earlier this week, an entirely unrelated controlled clinical trial reported that hydroxychloroquine did not prevent COVID-19 infection. The study from researchers at the University of Minnesota and Canada followed 821 participants who had had high or moderate exposure to the virus but were not showing symptoms. Quoting the New York Times, There was no meaningful difference between the placebo group and those who took the drug. Among those taking hydroxychloroquine, 49 of 414, or 11.8%, became ill. In the placebo group, 58, or 407, or 14.3% became ill. Analyzed statistically, the difference between those rates was not significant. The drug also did not make the illness any less severe. 
Side effects like nausea from hydroxychloroquine were more common than from placebos, 40.1% compared with 16.8%, but there were no problems with heart rhythm or any other serious adverse effects." End quote. A new study shows that us humans really do want to be kind and generous to one another, even when we have competing interests. The study from Ohio State University and the University of South Carolina and published in Science Advances aimed to study the various motivations behind people's kindness to others. Sociological theory categorizes these motivations into four types. Reciprocity, where someone does something for you, so you return the favor. Third party, where you view someone do something for someone else, so you want to reward the person who did the good deed. A group kind of motivation, where you're part of a group with an expectation that good deeds in the network will be rewarded. And finally, a pay-it-forward type of motivation, where if you receive kindness from a stranger, or even just see some good deed done, you'll do something kind for someone else. For this study, 709 volunteers were recruited who were, quote, paid an endowment of 10 points for every decision they made in various scenarios designed to contain combinations of motivators to share income. Just to keep them on their toes, one random scenario rewarded volunteers with bonus points at the end. Those points weren't mere tokens either, they had a real-world value of a few cents each, potentially adding up to a few dollars over the course of the experiment. Nothing life-changing, but the pay was just enough to force volunteers to question the extent of their charity. A comparison of the scenarios revealed volunteers were largely willing to hand over cash to strangers no matter which combinations of motivation were present, suggesting the different incentives for altruism aren't competitive." End quote. The results surprised the researchers who thought people would be looking after themselves first and rank their motivations accordingly, but quote, If you do something nice for me, I may weigh that more than if I see you do something nice for someone else, says David Melamed, one of the researchers. But we found that all the motivators still show up as predictors of how much a person is willing to give to someone, regardless of how the differing motivators are combined, end quote. So, we may have a lot of work to do on major issues of division, but the good news is that when you get down to an evolutionary level, we humans really do have each other's backs. Sometimes, the English language can be really limiting. If you find yourself wishing you had a word for a very specific experience, Maybe these words from other languages that have no direct English translation will help you out. First, you know in the before times when you'd have a meal with friends and end up spending a long time afterwards sitting around the table just chatting and relaxing, maybe having a few more drinks? In Spain, they have a word for that. It's called sobra mesa. Quoting The Guardian, The sobra mesa is a digestive period that allows for the slow settling of food, gossip, ideas, and conversations. It's also a sybaritic time, a recognition that there is more to life than working long hours, and that few pleasures are greater than sharing a table and then chatting nonsense for a hefty portion of what remains of the day, end quote. The next word is from Germany, Feierabend. It refers to the hours in between the end of the workday and going to bed. And while it was originally specific to the evening before a public holiday, it's now become more commonly used for any end of the workday. And it's strict, too. The whole point is you work very hard during the day so you can clock out at 5 and be done with any disturbances or obligations. 
And my favorite part about it is, quote, it isn't time for going to the cinema or the gym, but a time for doing nothing. In 1880, the cultural historian Wilhelm Heinrich Riel described the concept as an atmosphere of carefree well-being, of deep inner reconciliation, of the pure and clear quiet of the evening, end quote. Without distractions like the cinema or gyms or bars right now, Thier Abend is maybe something we can all lean into a bit. And another word perhaps a little applicable to the times is the Japanese word shogunai, which basically means it can't be helped. It's applied for many things from a traffic jam to the more tragic like earthquakes and other natural disasters. Quoting The Guardian, With its roots in the Zen Buddhist belief that suffering is a natural part of life, it could perhaps be described as Japan's version of the Serenity Prayer, a personal and communal recognition that, on occasion, passive acceptance of an unfortunate truth is far easier than trying to deny it. End quote. Within Japan, it has some critics who say that the frequent use of the phrase shogunai allows people to be too passive, in a similar way that French's c'est la vie can occasionally be employed. But I do think that the core intention, the acceptance of suffering in life and that balance, is a good one. There's also the Russian word taska for deep, pining anguish, the Dutch word polderant for pragmatic cooperation despite differences, and the Portuguese esperto or esperta, which refers to one of those infatigable types who's spirited, charming, quick-witted, and charitable, or maybe manipulative all at once. If you want to dive deeper into any of those or learn a few more, the link is in the show notes. With all of these holidays that brands use to bombard us on social media, you'd be forgiven for thinking that today's National Donut Day was, you know, invented by Dunkin' Donuts just a few years ago or something. But in fact, National Donut Day was started all the way back in 1938 by the Salvation Army to help raise awareness of their charitable efforts. Okay, so maybe there was some marketing element to it, but mostly they just wanted to celebrate the concepts of volunteerism, service, and building community, not necessarily selling donuts. To understand why the Salvation Army thought that National Donut Day would be the best way to celebrate the ideals of volunteerism, you have to go back to World War I and the multitude of charitable efforts being employed across the U.S. in support of the war effort. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, the Salvation Army, the Christian organization that you may know now for their ubiquitous bell-ringing storefront Santa Clauses or their questionable LGBTQ plus dances, sent about 250 Salvationists to support American troops in France. This group of mostly women were planning to bring treats and supplies to the front lines, but when they got there, found it was tough to make complicated baked goods like pies and cakes with their limited resources. Enter the simple donut. Quoting Mental Floss, Ensign Margaret Sheldon and adjutant Helen Perviance are credited with bringing donuts to the Western Front. They had a handful of ingredients at their disposal, including flour, sugar, lard, baking powder, and canned milk. Donuts were one of the few confections that they could make without an oven, and once they had a fire hot enough to heat the oil, they could fry them up fast. The women had the pan to cook them in, but for other parts of the recipe, they had to get creative. In a pinch, grape juice bottles and shell casings became rolling pins. An empty baking powder can became a donut cutter, and a tube that had come loose from a coffee maker punched the holes. 
Sheldon and Perviance's pan could fit seven donuts at a time, and on day one, they made just 150 donuts for the outfit of 800 men. The Salvationists fine-tuned their operation and were eventually making 5,000 donuts a day. The snacks were so beloved, the volunteers earned the nickname Donut Lassies, while the soldiers they served were dubbed Doughboys, end quote. One part of the appeal to soldiers may have been that donuts weren't actually that popular in the U.S. yet at the time, so the donut was a unique experience, and one that they were keen to keep indulging in when they returned home. And while the war continued, many bakers chose to start making donuts and promoting recipes of them because, as the donut lassies abroad had discovered, they required few ingredients and were highly adaptable, two very important factors during wartime rationing. The donut became something of a symbol for the Salvation Army, which led to them declaring National Donut Day in 1938, not as a day merely to eat a bunch of donuts, but also to recognize charitable works and volunteerism and secure donations to their organization. Which all would have made sense as a brand awareness move at the time to people who maybe still knew about the donut lassies, but these days it's mostly just thought of as a day to score a free donut. Speaking of which, if any places with donuts are still open in your area by the time you listen to this, here are a few places where you can get free donuts today. Krispy Kreme has a no-strings-attached, no-purchase-necessary, one-free-donut of any flavor policy today. At Dunkin', you've got to buy a drink to get a free donut, but this weekend, you can also get a half-dozen box of donuts for free if you spend over $10. Lamar's Donuts are also doing a one-free-donut-with-no-strings-attached policy, and if you are a healthcare worker, educator, or first responder, you can have a second free donut. There are a few more small or local chains at the link in the show notes, and of course, double-check with your local quarantine measures before you try to score these donut deals. And if you missed out entirely, don't worry, there is a second annual National Donut Day on November 5th. This one may also date back to the 1930s, but historians are currently unclear on the reasoning for its origins. And finally today, a few video recommendations for you to queue up this weekend. First, if you haven't seen it yet, actor Josh Gad has been reuniting the cast and crew of major blockbuster hits via Zoom as part of his new Reunited Apart series on YouTube. So far, he's reunited the folks from The Goonies, Back to the Future, Splash, and most recently, The Lord of the Rings. They've been dropping a lot of never-before-heard behind-the-scenes stories, surprising fans, and just generally bringing a lot of joy to our small screens. And speaking of joy in tough times... Wannabe is a short docudrama in which a group of elderly women form a Spice Girls tribute band to help one of their friends pay her bills. It's a look at real people in austerity-era London and brings a real sense of mm, zigazaga. And lastly, novelist John Green curated a playlist on YouTube called Black Creators, Black History, which includes short documentaries, speeches, vlogs, poetry, honest conversations, and more. It's chock full of stuff to learn and important voices to listen to, so I highly recommend digging in this weekend. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media, the daily podcast people. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you all have a good weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday.